What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise together. One of the things that I think is so interesting is I, like you say, had an opportunity to read the book early. And I know there was a plan to release the book earlier. And then all of the world goes upside down and there's this decision to delay the book. And what's interesting is I read the book early, not realizing how many of the things that were in the book would have application in my life today as the book comes out. And so in some, I think, beautiful way, there are some things that have, because of the delay, afforded people who will read it in real time a gift for getting the benefit of what you've written because of all of the things that they've experienced in the last few months worth of time. It's not a thing that you would have necessarily planned, but man, can we just give some gratitude to the universe for having timing end up actually working out perfectly because my goodness, there's so much in this book that applies to the times we find ourselves in. Yeah, I mean, you're spot on. And I've heard that again and again. It's really interesting for me because obviously, and I, and I think you'd agree with this too. It's like, I've been doing this for so long and studying these things for so long and sharing them for so long that to me, they always seem urgent and top priority. So for me, I'm kind of been like, the world needs this every, like I felt like this 15 years ago. And, and so for me hearing that and, and people feeling like they're able to digest it and receive it right now is really powerful. And I finished writing the book end of last year. So I handed in my manuscript like November, 2019. And obviously then everything's happened this year. And I, I couldn't agree with you more that everything that I've wrote inside this book, it, it really does correlate with what's going on right now. And in a way that I never planned for or predicted. And, and at the same time, it's, I, I just, that's what I love about wisdom is that it's truly timeless. It's truly universal and it's always accessible and practical. And that's the nature of the universe, God, wisdom. Like it's just always prevalent and you don't, it doesn't, you don't have to fit it into your life. It just, it already aligns. If that, if I'm making any no, sense. No, 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 it makes perfect that. sense. We're getting ahead of ourselves though. But I like to always ask that a guest on the show introduce themselves. So if you would, for anyone who's lived under a rock and has no concept of who Jay Shetty is, will you just give us a little background on who you are, how you found yourself here and the work that you do? Yeah, so... My name is Jay Shetty. Uh, I'm an author, podcast host, and storyteller, and former monk. And I found myself here as someone who was introduced to a monk and the incredible wisdom of a lot of Eastern traditions when I was 18 years old, and found myself completely in awe of the great insights, techniques, and tools that sat within them, and have spent the last 15 years of my life mining, searching, seeking for those tools, experimenting them with myself, and now trying to share them with the world in a way that I can hope uh, helps them train their mind for peace and purpose every day. I love you so much. Uh, I don't say that lightly, and I don't say it to most guests, I'll be honest, but you are one of these people who came into my life 
And I did not fully appreciate the reason behind you having been introduced to my life until months after we got to know each other because our friendship has been a, a real gift for me, especially in the midst of transitioning in my own life and going through somewhat of a hard season. And uh, man, I just appreciate your friendship and the inspiration that you have afforded me personally over these last three months and beyond. But I, I was struck as I was looking back at your book in preparation for this conversation and how you have in your first chapter and your third chapter, two things that I have been just overwhelmed by in this journey of the last handful of months where the world has felt completely upside down. And I want to talk about those two things first. So the first one, the first chapter of your book is all about identity and the idea that you are who you think you are. I am who I think I am is the subtitle of the first chapter. And there are so many people in real time who have had their identity in some ways upended by the circumstances that they could not have necessarily foreseen in this quarantine, in the transition of job, in the way that what they thought was normal has now been completely made unnormal. And I wanna just have you just talk for a second about how we each individually have to fight to claim who we are, irrespective of what we thought we were, irrespective of what anyone may have told us we were. Because I know for myself, I am coming out of a, of, a, of a world where so much of what I thought I was in my identity as Rachel's husband, in my identity as a person who worked at the Hollis Company, in my identity generally, it's just been reframed. And so like really becoming comfortable owning, oh no, no, Dave, you actually are in control of writing on this blank piece of paper that you've been afforded who you are and how you show up in the world we talked just a little bit about identity and how your experience uh, and the things that you've put in the book may, maybe can afford some people here some peace as they also wrestle with identity themselves. Yeah, and Dave, first of all, I want to thank you for for being in my life too because when we we were in touch and connected over you know DM and social media, and then when we got to know each other more in Puerto Rico, and then spending time talking after that, you know, I, I feel like it's it's really a hard to sometimes just build really real relationships and, and very quickly. And I feel like we did that. And a big part of that was how you were with me. And I know that I'm like that sometimes, like if someone really wants a real relationship, then I love it. And I like, I like go all in and fall in love with them like I did with you. And then, and so I'm, I'm very responsive to, to when I feel that genuine energy. And I really have felt that with you from all the support you've given me for the past few months in, in many different ways too. So first of all, I just want to recognize that. And also because I'm doing this interview with you as a friend and we're being conversational, I want this, I want to say things in this interview that are totally off the cuff and, and not in the book. And so everything I'm going to share in this interview from this point onwards is, is me really thinking out loud in this conversation. And I'm going to not dive into the book specifically because I want, I would love for you all to read it, of course, but I want to focus more on the questions as real human conversation, if Let's that's okay go. with you. Yes. So, so when, when we talk about identity, what ends up happening is that we create our identities around people, positions, and possessions. So that's how we craft our identity. We craft them around people. So I am X person's husband or wife. I am X or Y person's father or mother, whatever it may be. So we craft our identity around people. We craft our identity around positions 
oh, I'm the CEO of this company. I'm a number one New York Times bestseller. Like that becomes your identity. And so you craft it around positions. And then we craft it around possessions. Like I possess a fancy car or I possess a fancy home. And when we were monks, we were trained in these three things being false identities or false attachments because they are all dependent on something external of us, which means that our identity is completely vulnerable and open to upheaval and change and chaos. And so we almost set ourselves up for feeling disappointed. Now, when I first came across across that teaching, I don't even think I really understood what that meant. And even now, I don't think I fully grasp what that means. But I know that when I became a monk and my identity became my possessions, my robes, my identity became my position. I was considered a monk. Uh, you know, I would be able to do priestly things. Uh, I was, uh, and then my uh, people, the monks and the teachers and the mentors. And so even as a monk, I could falsely attach and align to something that wasn't me. And so when I had to break being a monk, when I had to leave that path, it was so destroying for me because since I was 18 to the point when I left and I was 25, it was almost like being married to that in my mind for seven years. And I've actually often discussed it as a divorce. It really felt like yeah. getting divorced because because I had completely wrapped up my whole identity in being a monk. And the funny thing is that thinking like a monk is not thinking you are anything, <laughs> but, but, but who you are internally. Now, what does that mean? Because when you start removing your identity from positions, possessions, and people, then it's like, well, what is my identity? And the reason why we hold on to those things is because we don't know what else to hold on. And that's why the real answer to that is holding on to your passion, holding on to your purpose and holding on to your inner potential that's always been there. That's something that you're fully in control of. And so if we don't go on that inward journey and that inward quest for our passion, our potential and our purpose, then we will only get attached to possessions, positions and people. And I think Albert Einstein said it best. He said, if you want to be happy in life, don't tie it to a person or a thing, tie it to a goal. And, and I would change that to tie it to a purpose. Like I would, I would just edit that last word in, in when you're living purposefully, you can live that in any area. So we can dive into that, but that's kind of like the overarching fill of life. And everything I've just told you is not in the book. And, and I'm now I'm going, well, I should have done this interview before I wrote the book because it should be in the book. Well, what's interesting is I, I have definitely, I've been spending a lot of time journaling and diving a lot into this conversation around identity for myself. And there were so many things in my own identity that were connected to if I can or when I do instead of already being. And what I've realized is, oh my goodness, I already am enough. I already am a child of God. I already am worthy. And, and the idea that my worthiness or my enoughness would come as a byproduct of the title or the people or the affirmation that comes from any structure at all was absolutely 100% making them contingent on those other things existing in a way that would eliminate the possibility for my enoughness to exist on its own. And so... Uh, it's not that it's easy, trust, I, you know, like I understand, and for anyone who's listening, it's not an easy thing necessarily, but finding a way to connect to that has been liberating from having to try and reach for something external to validate 
your enoughness, your worthiness, your goodness, because of the way that you might have a descriptor attached because of who you are relative to them or who you are relative to a title that might exist. Fear is the third chapter, and fear uh, has, has been a thing that I have also spent a lot of time wrestling with because, as it turns out, when you have an identity that you believe to be the thing that you are driven toward and it changes, if you live inside of this quarantine and things are changing in your life, if you're going through relationship transition, whatever it might be. I, I've talked a lot about this idea of this blank piece of paper that has been handed to me in trying to define what my future looks like now that it's different than what it was. And the barrier to my imagination has oftentimes been correlated to the fear that exists in me being able to fully articulate what I believe to be possible for my life because I'm afraid. And I've had to go through this exercise of really calling out my fear, making a list of the things that I'm afraid of and debunking those fears as being completely unbelievable and not, and not true so that I have the ability to create the imagination, create the, the words that would go on this blank piece of paper. I know you've talked about fear in the book, but also have just spent a lot of time in the way that you try and teach online and everywhere else about fear. Talk a little bit about how fear gets in the way of people being able to fully live into who they have been put on this planet for and why it exists. Yeah. And first of all, I want to go back to that as well, Dave, what you're saying in the sense of just none of this is easy and, and none of this is, you know, just it doesn't just happen. And when you are put into difficult situations like you've been put into and I've been put into and anyone who's listening and watching who's been, who's, who's been in tough situations and in really difficult situations far beyond the ones that I could imagine too, the, the important thing to realize is that nothing we're saying is easy. And it's just that it's easier than just staying in that position. And, and that's, that's the only win really there of, of realizing that is that, you know, the old truth of like, if I just stay here and stay stuck, and as Thich Nhat Hanh would call it, we shy away from unfamiliar pain because we'd rather have familiar so pain. So good. So say we, that again. Hold on. Say, that, say that again. Say yeah. that again. That's a good one. So Thich Nhat Hanh, an incredible monk, has said this beautiful statement that we as humans would rather choose familiar pain than unfamiliar pain. So we would rather repeatedly go through something that's familiar, even if it's painful and hurtful and destroys us, than venture out on a path that is unfamiliar, unknown, and could lead us to a better version of ourselves. And so we stay in that familiar pain. And the role of fear is actually to guide and signal us towards that unfamiliar pain. It's actually there to urge you and to push you and to encourage you to move forward. But what we do with fear is that we, I, I, I've been saying this or thinking about this recently. It's like, it's almost like we have a friend called Dan when it comes to fear and Dan stands for distract, avoid, and numb. So what we try and do with fear is we go be friends with Dan where we're like, oh, I'm going to distract myself. I'm going to avoid it or I'm going to numb it. And so you've talked about this in your book, but some of us distract ourselves with entertainment or escapes. Some of us avoid it by just not thinking about it. And what you speak about a lot is numbing it with alcohol or drugs or something external to numb pain. And so what you talk about so beautifully in your book 
and and how you've overcome that and had to push through that and and what that takes and so fear is something that needs to be addressed fear is something that needs to be understood and that's all fear is doing fear is trying to get you to understand something that you're choosing to distract avoid and numb yourself from and the best example i've experienced or given is when you uh, my my friends have just had, and I know you have adorable children. So I'm I'm always like I I love all your stories and post with them. But I was uh, my friends, uh, our closest friends in LA. They they've had a baby boy during this time during COVID, and he's now seven months old. So literally, uh, you know, spanning this whole time, and it's almost like he barely cries. But when he cries, all he wants is his parents to come and pick him up. And, and that's all that fear is doing. Fear is crying inside of you to get your attention. And the more you distract, avoid, and numb it, it's like doing that. To, imagine you do that to a child. It just, it just doesn't get what it needs. It's so helpless at that time. And so your fear just, just breeds more anxiety internally if you don't address it. So fear is crying out for your attention. I love it because I, I too, I've been reading a lot about... Why do I feel the things that I feel? What, 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 what is this emotion that has presented itself and have spent a lot of time trying to remind myself that I am not my fear, I am not my anxiety, I am not my emotion, I am not my thoughts, I'm not the soundtrack that's running in the back of my mind, I'm an observer of those feelings, I'm an observer of those thoughts, it's very untethered soul, but it is game-changing. If you can see fear, if you can see anxiety, as intel, as information that is being presented to you, it, it, it's, a, it's a puzzle piece that is begging to have you understand a little bit better why it exists so that you can address it and actually do something productive with it as opposed to staying stuck with it or staying static with it. Um, it doesn't, again, it doesn't make it comfortable. It doesn't make it, you know, a thing that you necessarily enjoy. But if you can find a way to welcome it in a way that lets you ask, what, what are you doing here? What is the purpose that you are presenting? What is the, the possibility that you're presenting? It's, to me, changed a whole host of how I might approach debunking the fear or understanding the fear in a way that makes it productive. Yeah, and that's the thing, that fear is made useful and helpful when you look at it that way. It's almost like saying, like, you know that there's a, a, a deadly animal in your home, but you're just avoiding walking into that room. And it's like, well, that's a bad idea because that fear could come into another room. Whereas when you know it's there and you're aware now, you may not walk into it straight away and deal with it, but you may find the right help. You may get the right support. You may bring in a support team, you know, and that's how we have to think about fear is that, you know, being bold or facing your fears as we hear about doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm going to walk in through that door and deal with that deadly animal one-on-one. -on -one. You may have to get support. You may have to do research. You may have to speak to mentors and guides and you have to get a team in. And that's how we have to deal with our fears too. And actually when you keep your fear trapped in that room, and you don't do all of those things, that's when that fear gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And so we have to realize that you don't have to address your fear straight away because you may need time to just process, but you need to address it at some point because avoiding it is just letting it get stronger and it just gets fitter and healthier and in an unhealthy yeah, way. Yeah, I think you can get to a place where you become so accustomed to maintaining it or catering to it, that it becomes normal for you to do it in a way that allows it to fester, grow, you know, just become something that is 
untenable and super unmanageable. Yeah, you just go feed that deadly animal every day. You go push a little plate yeah, of food. Just right under the door. Here, have some fear. Yeah, just as long as you can stay healthy, please. I, I had this weird experience yesterday. I woke up. I got a message from a buddy that I went to college with that one of our mutual friends, a person that we were very, very close to, passed away in the middle of the night. Just like fell asleep, did not wake up, seemingly healthy, around my age. It messed with my conversation internally about mortality and just the recognition of how limited amount of time that each of us have on this planet and all the bigger existential questions that inevitably come up when you start to wrestle with oh, wow, we have no guarantee that tomorrow will necessarily be here. We have to make the most of the time that we have. I know that you, at 16, you lost two of your best friends, one to a car accident, another to gang violence. I'm curious, especially because I find myself still today, a day later, contemplating the what the heck does this all mean when you can think about it through the lens of how much limited time we end up having? What did those events do to shaping your journey today? And how do you think about mortality? Yeah, I think when I went through it at that time at such a young age, it was really hard because the question I kept asking myself is, but they were good people. And so it was almost like that belief that good people should live longer uh, and, and, you know, be healthier and because we need goodness. And so that was kind of, as, as a 16 year old mentality, it was very much just like, well, they were good people. That was kind of like the overarching, like mind talk and self-talk in my head. And, and even this year, I, I lost, I think I'll yeah, you did. about this. I, I lost my, one of my deepest mentors, uh, to stage four brain cancer. And he passed like just at the beginning of lockdown or, or just before and I I felt like I lost him probably like two, three years ago when he got diagnosed because that's when his short-term memory and everything started to get affected. So we couldn't have a uh, coherent conversation anymore. So even when I went back to see him in London, it wasn't the same because he was still there physically, but the the mental, emotional, and, uh, and mental, emotional aspect was affected. The spiritual aspect, however, was not affected, which gave me more faith because he was a, he was a, a man of God and his his whole approach imagine your brain is broken to some degree in in the disease that he had and all he would do is thank people for their service to god like that's all he would do so if you met him and he'd even forgotten who you were his broken record was thank you for what you're doing for god thank you for serving others thank you for helping people like that would be his and i was like wow what a what an amazing broken record to have like you know, if your mind's going to break and that's what your mind goes, your brain goes to, that's phenomenal. So, but, but even dealing with his death, that was the really hard one for me now, even more so because I had so many visions for how he could help people and, and how he would sup- support me through what I'm trying to do in the world. And he was always someone who understood me and, and I've known him for a very, very long time. And the way that, that I've tried to process death is a few ways the one is that for me, it gives me a great sense of urgency in both my service and in both my self-care. So now when I have that day when I'm like, oh, I don't feel like exercising or, oh, you know, I, I feel like might as well just eat like tons of sugar or, you know, when I have those days, I'm not saying that I don't still eat sugar and don't work out. I, I miss days of workout too. But now when I, when I notice myself going down a path 
where I know that for my physical well-being, I'm not taking care of myself, that acts as an urgency to rein you back in and go, well, at least don't be the cause of it yourself. And that's a really hard like thing I've had to face is that I've realized that a lot of my habits were just not good for me. And, and if I was really serious about taking care of this body and the gift of life, then my habits had to change. And by the way, I still love eating donuts and, you know, like, and, and I enjoy my days to do that. But I'm just saying that being more wary and conscious of that. And the other side is the urgency to serve, the recognition that time is limited. And so after doing my self-care and taking care of myself, my day should be about service and should be about giving because that's what I want to be doing till the day I'm here and I, I hope that I can. And that includes everything, sorry, from, from family through to uh, social media, through to the world. It could mean anything for everyone. It doesn't have to be big or small. It's just whatever you see as service. And, and this was the best one that I got from him because I was really grappling with why he had to go because I felt he had so much to do. I would always say to him, I was like, you've got to become the advisor to the prime minister one day. And you've got to, you know, he, he just had that, he was very regal and he, he was just brilliant. And, and he had so much to offer the world. And so I was really grappling with like trying to understand why he was gone. And then I realized that the only way he can still live is if I live by the qualities he aspired for. And I realized that if I every day woke up and focused on becoming more of the person he would want me to be, then actually he would still be living with me and I could feel his presence. And, and genuinely that just filled me with so much joy because I realized now again, it wasn't about, again, going back to what we started with, we miss people because of what they did for us. Uh, we miss people because of who they were for us and now we don't have them but we forget to live for them. And, and that's really something that is never taken away from us, that we can continue to live for the people that we love uh, and live with them by being present with their values and qualities. So that gave me a new sound feeling. So I'd say sense of urgency in my service, sense of urgency in my wellness. And, and then thirdly, a sense of aspiration to try to develop the qualities that I believe he or they have. Beautiful. I love it. And, and a great way to be an ambassador of the legacy of someone who meant something to you, which is, of course, what all of us should aspire for. You were a monk, which is not a thing I get to say, frankly, to anyone. But you were a monk. You wore robes. You shaved your head. You slept on the floor of a gym. Uh, no, you slept on the floor. You lived out of a gym locker. I, I read that you were doing meditation for four to eight hours per day. You were not born a monk, though. So you transitioned into being a monk after having not previously been one. What was it like undergoing such a radical physical and environmental change as someone who did not grow up necessarily experiencing the things that for seven years you just put yourself inside of? Oh, yeah. No, so it was three years and I left seven years ago now. The, the interesting thing is, so yeah, like, like you said, Dave, I was born and raised in London and I didn't have any affinity towards monks or any of that growing up in London. Like I, I, I think the first monk I met was when I was 18. And here's, here's what I've understood. And this is how people listening and watching can think about it. That when you think like a monk, thinking like a monk is actually the greatest act of rebellion and breaking the mold because you're doing something completely against the grain of what society is telling you to do. So now you may not want to be a monk, 
And you may not understand what I was trying to do becoming a monk, but the key part of it is that you are basically saying this way doesn't work. And I want to try a new way. And so that's why the monk mindset is so broad and applies to everyone is you saying, I'm going to find a new path in life because I don't like the path that people are telling me to go on. And so that was initially what sparked it for me because I saw people around me who were a bit older who were very vulnerable with me. And I really benefited this. I've realized in my whole life, I've always had friends who are older than me. And I think that that has saved me so much time and energy because I've had friends who are older, who are vulnerable and honest with me about their struggles. And so growing up in London, I had a lot of friends who had good careers, partners, homes, but they would all tell me that there's something was missing in their life. And, and I would just observe that and I would be like, oh, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, they've got a gorgeous partner. They've got a great house. They've got a great car. So what is it? And then when I met the monk, I was like, oh, that's what it is. Like, like that's what's missing. So the transition became easier again. And this is another thing for everyone is in my summer holidays and my Christmas holidays between the ages of 18 and 21, when I graduated, I used to spend a month every year living in the ashram, training with monks before I became a monk myself when I graduated uh, at 21, going on 22 and lived for three years. Now that kind of one month every year was like my kind of experimentation. And, and that time is what gave me confidence in the lifestyle. So I would literally go from steakhouses, bars and suits in the city, interning at finance companies and spend the other half of my summers, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter, spending it living with the monks in India. And so at that time, the first time I did it when I was 18, there was a big shock. But here's the thing, when you do stuff and you know why you're doing it, who your mentor is, and, and, and therefore I also recommend to people when they're younger to try more stuff out. And by the way, we're all younger than we think. So we're only getting older every day. So you're younger than you are gonna be tomorrow and next year. Trying new stuff out, and being open to new experiences is the best thing we can do. And so for me, when I was 18, I was like, yeah, let's check this out. Let's sleep on the floor. Let's, let's not eat for that many hours. Let's meditate. For, like, I was like, let's just try it all out. And I remember the first time I went, my biggest fear was like, I can't listen to hip hop music for a week. Like I wasn't allowed to take my MP3 player. And, and, then, and then I was like, well, what am I gonna do? And I couldn't take my Game Boy. And, and there weren't, you know, we didn't have like smartphones where you could watch Netflix at that time. So I didn't have to worry about that, but that was my biggest fear. And the funny thing is after spending that time there, I didn't even think about that. And so I was like, I'm, you know, there's something real here. So the transition became easier because I'd done those mini experiments. And, and I think I really had this openness, but like you said, we slept on the floor. I wasn't used to that. That was uncomfortable to start off with. Uh, we woke up at 4 a.m. every day. That still isn't fun. Uh, I, I used to have cold showers in the morning. Do not want to have one of those ever again, right? I'm happy having my warm showers. Uh, so it's just so many of these experiments. But what I found is that all of these experiments taught me something about myself. And, and I think that's what experiments are for. Sometimes we think we have to make a big life decision. And really all we have to do is experiment, test, and try. What's interesting in this window in my own life, there have been a lot of things that I previously was super skeptical about that I have become really, really open to because I am inside of uncharted waters. And so my capacity for my willingness to try things that I maybe previously had some taboo around or skepticism around is now just the, like the, the, the gate 
has been lowered. That there, there is very little that I will not at this point try. And so meditation, breathing exercises, I mean, those were things that I would have never, ever tried. And now I've just come to fully embrace them, totally appreciate the power of them. I'm surprised that it took me going through a really, really hard season to have me become open to the possibility that doing something different might be the remedy that I am looking for to make it through the thing that I am working through. If someone is listening and they're like, what is this monk mumbo jumbo? What is this meditation? What is this deep breathing? What, like, what are the things that you even speak of? It sounds crazy. It, it, like, it sounded crazy to me. And yet I have been blessed by things that were crazy to me because of needing to find a different set of tools inside of a different kind of time. What, what would you say to someone who has skepticism like I may have had before? Yeah, I, I think, and, and that's why I loved your book, by the way, because I, I think it's so great hearing from someone who's been skeptical. And, and by the way, I was the same. I was super cool at school. And so for me to like go off and, you know, I, I was really geeky until age 14. And then between 14 and 18, I would, I would, get, well, I would have considered myself pretty cool. Maybe, maybe actually between 16 to 18. Um, and so when I, when I was getting involved in monk life, it was like, I, I was, I was actually enjoying life. And, and so I didn't really have a need to go off and become a monk. Like I didn't have, I've had more challenges after living as a monk than I did before in terms of things going wrong and challenges and all that kind of stuff. And so the first thing I'd say to someone is, and, and this is probably an age old truth, but it's like, you have to try an experiment before you have a perception. And I think that applies to everything. Like you just, our perception is so often wrong about everything from something as simple as, but all of us on that social media challenge can't even guess the same color of the dress, right? Like to the point that our senses are so limited, our eyes are so limited, our ears are so limited, our, our scent is so limited, our senses are so much more limited than we believe that if we've not experienced something, if we've not immersed in something, we don't really know the benefit of it. And that applies to something as simple as, does that restaurant make good burritos and chocolate fudge cake or is meditation and breathing real? Like the same is true for both. You can't knock something that you haven't tried. And so for me, that's the first thing I'd say is that please experience before coming to a conclusion. I think that applies to everything. The, the, the second thing I'd say is look at the science. And, and I'm, you know, the book's full of science because to me, science is often something that can convince some of us as the biggest skeptics. So for me, this wasn't even about my monk experience. When I looked at the research on monks' brains, studies show that monks have the highest form of gamma waves in their brain scans, which is linked to the highest amount of happiness joy and attention in the world. So scientifically, monks have been proven to have the happiest brains on the planet. So, so there's, some, there's something about that that we have to take seriously. So second thing I'd say is look at the science. And, and the third thing I'd say is that you don't have to believe to experience and feel and try. Like you don't have to come at it from a point of view of like, I agree, therefore I'm doing this. And I think that's where we sometimes go wrong in life is we think we have to agree with something before experiencing it. And actually it's often the other way around. You have to experience to decide whether you agree so or disagree. Good. And 
And I think we have to remove that in our life. Like we have so many things in our life that we'll never do because we don't agree with it in essence. And it's almost like, well, no, don't, don't, don't limit yourself by, by blocking. And, and that's what it is. It's like, you just don't know what you're missing. And so I always ask people like, who is your monk in your life? Because if I didn't meet a monk, I would never, ever have dreamed of becoming a monk or even tried to become one. And so it's like, who is your monk in your life? Like, what is that habit in your life? Who is that person in your life that you've not met yet that hasn't shown you the next part of your journey? And, and Dave, I want to share this story because it really sums up what you're saying. And this is one of the ones that I, I didn't, I, I actually didn't get to put in the book. And, and, and so I want to share it with you. Uh, it's a story that the Buddha tells and it's of a person that wants to cross a river. So there's a fast flowing river and the person wants to get to the other side as they're on their journey. And the river's flowing really, really fast. And the person's like, what do I do? And so they notice there's some bamboo sticks, there's some rope and they say, well, let me make a raft. So they lay out the bamboo pipes, they tie it up with rope, they make a little oar out of you know, the other bamboo stick and, and try and make whatever they can. They, they pretty much craft together this raft they get on the raft and then they get off to the other side. They're getting off to the other side, rowing really fast, rowing really fast. The bamboo's holding itself. They get to the other side and they go, wow, this, this raft saved my life. This raft is amazing. If I didn't have this raft, what would I do? And so they say, I can never let go of this raft. I have to keep it with me forever. It's the best thing in the world. So they strap the raft to their back and then they start walking along. They've got their raft. And now as they get to the next stage of their journey, they come to a wooded forest and there's literally trees every couple of inches. And they're trying to get through the forest. And the Buddha says, as they're trying to get through the forest, the raft won't let them go further. And they're like trying to maneuver and squeeze the raft through and it just keeps knocking against all the trees. And then they come to this, the Buddha says, they come to this really important realization that to get through this wooded forest, they'll have to let go of the raft. And, and it's like a, a huge revelation because it's like, well, this raft saved my life. How can I let go of it? But wait a minute, I may actually lose my life if I don't let go of this. So in line with what you said, we sometimes have to let go of the tool that got us through the last decade to adopt the new tool that will get us through the next decade. And by the way, that doesn't change our faith. It doesn't change our belief system. It doesn't change who we are at the core. But as you said, we need new tools. And so this person leaves the raft behind and walks gracefully through the forest. I love that. I know. I love it. I mean, one of, the, one of the questions I had written down was the idea of how important it is to question your values from time to time. And this is an illustration of the importance. It doesn't mean abandon the things that are at the core of who you are or your faith or anything else. But if you are living inside of a construct that was designed by someone else to help you get from one station to the next at one point in time in your life to another, it doesn't mean necessarily that that thing is the thing that is here today for you to continue on your journey. And I, I just, I love it so much. I'm, I, I'm in the midst of a very question everything kind of station in my life because there are so many things that I thought I knew that I'm now wondering if there is still truth inside of the box that I have held onto and that I'm living inside of. And so I am questioning the values that I have in real time, not in a way that dismisses who I am, not in a way that dismisses the core of my essence, but in a way that opens up the possibility of me reaching for something in the curiosity and the inquisition of what possibly might also be available in my journey as a, as a means to continuing to move forward inside of, again, some uncharted space that I've never, 
actually been in before. Yeah. And the universe is always trying to get us to take that journey. It's always trying to get us to take that journey. But when we don't take that journey voluntarily, things keep coming up in all of our lives to force us to take that journey. And, and that's why if, if you're listening and watching this and you're like, well, I don't really have that many challenges right now, or I don't think I need to question myself right now. And sometimes it can become like that, even as a sharer of this, that you get to a point where you're like, oh yeah, well, basically I understand everything. And, and you know, every time I've, yeah, I've luckily, thankfully to my teachers, I've, I've never really felt that way. But even if I get close, I have to remind myself that that's not the mindset that's going to help. Like you feeling like, you know, everything I'm always in every conversation seeking a new truth and a deeper truth, because even if you're not learning new things, you can always learn deeper things. And I think that's something that we mistake that we always feel, Oh, this I've heard this before, but just because you've heard it before doesn't mean you've heard it with the same depth. And so we keep looking for new things, not deeper things. And to me, the wisdom's in how deep you can go, not how new. Oh you my can goodness! Go. I mean, you can hear the same thing from ten different teachers, and the eleventh teacher saying it in a very specific way can finally be the way that it lands in a way that actually implants in you and changes the way you think. I am here for it. Let's let's talk yeah. about purpose for a second. You're someone who's obviously living their life's purpose very, very well. But there are a lot of people who are listening who still struggle with this elusive hunt for finding their why. I've talked about finding your why as being this convergence between something you're great at, something you have passion for, something that brings light to the world, and something that if you need to can afford financial security for your family. How do you think about a why and, and finding that kind of overlap, whatever those things end up being between what you're great at and what you love, as you might instruct someone who's struggling a little bit with what their why is and how to find their purpose. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I wanted to mention something you said on the last part about the 11th person was, uh, I, I saw a post on Instagram stories yesterday. And it was someone had written like this long thing about the book. And they were like, you know, I, I, this book is really connected with me, etc. And they were like, I feel really bad now because my husband's been telling me everything that's in this book for the last 10 years, but I've only started believing it now. And it was really funny when I read that because I was just like, this is, this is awesome. Like we all need different people to tell us the same thing. Uh, but yeah, talking about purpose. So I'd say that I've like dedicated the last 15 years of my life to really discovering and trying to live my purpose. Like it's been a obsession for me because after living as a monk and coming back into the world, I didn't feel comfortable doing things that didn't feel purposeful. So I almost went through this massive identity issue where I'd gone from being a monk where I was doing what I love every day to then coming back to the world and having to do things I didn't love and things that I didn't understand and things that didn't have meaning in my life. And the first thing I realized was I had to find purpose where I was. And that was a really important lesson before we dive into finding the purpose. I had to focus on finding purpose where I was. So when I came back from living as a monk, I went back into the corporate world because that was what I knew how to do. Like I didn't know any other way to survive from a financial and mental standpoint in the world than the corporate world because that's what I was trained for. And so I went back into the corporate world and it, by the way, it did not feel like monk life and it didn't feel like service. And I was like, the only way that I will find this to be purposeful is if I feel I'm learning skills that are going to benefit 
my service in the long term. And I didn't know what my, I didn't know that I was going to do any of this. All I knew is that I wanted to share the messages I'd learned. That's all I knew. And I didn't know I was going to make videos. I didn't know I was going to write a book. I didn't know anything. I just knew I wanted to share these messages that I'd learned. And so I wanted to learn any skills that would help me one day maybe share these messages that I'd learned. So I was excited to learn about how to use PowerPoint. I was excited to learn about um, social media that my company was investing in a lot at the time. So I was learning about social media and I ended up learning digital strategy, which was how do companies launch themselves in a digital way? No idea that I would ever do any of those things, but I just knew that these were interesting things. So I made my work purposeful by learning things that I think would be useful. And I think this is a mistake we make. I think a lot of people today forget that to even do your passion in the world, you still need to understand the world. You still need to understand the functions. And I know you know this very strongly because you've brought so much of your corporate experience into your work. And so you've seen the benefits of being someone who's highly organized and a high performer in your life. The second thing I realized was that I have to accept that for a degree of time, I will be doing both my profession and my purpose or passion at the same time. I had to accept that. It was not going to be an easy switch or an easy transition. There were going to be a few years where I was got one foot in each boat and I was just balancing and trying to figure it out and nothing was clear. So that was the second thing I had to accept. And the third thing I had to accept is that the world would not accept mediocrity in the sense that passion was not enough. And so I think our definitions of purpose are very aligned and mine stems from Dharma. Dharma is the Sanskrit word for purpose. And it's found in the synergy between passion, strengths, and compassion, very similar to what you said, good, love, and uh, give light in the world, very similar to Ikigai, the reason for being. So you can see how all these ancient wisdom traditions have so much similarity. And that's a good thing because it means they work. Uh, And and so Dharma uh, is found in passion. So that which brings you joy. And so the first thing I'd say with passion is the way to discover passion is passion is like a teenager Interest is like the child and curiosity is like the womb or a toddler. Like curiosity is the birthplace of, of, of interest and passion and purpose. So my first question to you is, what are you curious about? I was curious about social media. I was curious about wisdom. I was curious about finding the parallels. I didn't know that they were my passion. I was curious. And there's a, I think it's Einstein who says, you know, I have no special, I have no special ability my only ability is that I'm passionately curious or something like that. And, and so it starts with, you know, what are you curious about? Now, strengths is what I was talking about. And this is probably the biggest one, Dave, that I feel I meet a lot of people who actually know what they're kind of passionate about, but they haven't developed it into a strength. Yeah. This is so big. It is so big because you will, you will constantly not be able to convert your passion into a purpose without strength. And It's important to remember that you can't confuse inexperience with weakness. A lot of us feel just because we haven't done something, we feel, oh, I'm never going to be good at that. That's just not true. You've proven that with running, right, in your life. And I'm sure many other things. And I've proven that in my life in many things. I didn't grow up as a a good speaker. I, I was forced by my parents to go to public speaking schools from age 11 to age 18. And boy, did it pay off. And am I so grateful to them. But they forced me because I was this shy kid at school. And, and I'm still an introvert in, in smaller circles. And, you know, I'm still far more 
uh, shyer than people would think I am. And so strength is so important and that has to be something you're willing to invest in. If you want to be a photographer, you need to go become the best photographer that you can. And, and if you want to become a, a finance manager, you need to go become the best finance person you can. Like it's, it's about that strength. And finally, this is the key part that's missing for so many successful people is compassion. How are you using it in the service of others? How are you giving it away? How are you using it to benefit other people's lives? And that's the part that leads to fulfillment. So if you do your passion and your strengths, you'll become successful but you won't be fulfilled. Fulfillment comes from using it in the service of others. And so that's how I think about purpose, which I think we're very aligned on. And and I would just add those three preliminary steps, which are find purpose where you are. Don't look for purpose somewhere else. Make sure that um, you're deeply able to apply your purpose in different areas of your life. Don't just think that it only exists you know, you're going to have to do that. Uh, what's the right word? I don't, that balancing act for a few years, the balancing act of I'm doing my purpose, but I'm working a full-time job. That's going to happen for a long time. And then finally, that don't settle for mediocrity because you didn't work on your strengths and you just hope that someone would help you out because of your passion. Yeah, the strengths piece is interesting because you have also written and spoken a ton about ego. I've also talked a lot about how ego has been something that's definitely gotten in my way. I think it's a thing that gets in the way of a lot of us in our pursuit for impact and greatness and purpose and every, everything, anything else. But you've talked about building confidence, not ego, the difference between ego and self-esteem. Can you just share just a little bit about what the difference is between the two? Because it's important as a piggyback to the idea of leveraging your strengths. Yeah. And I think the challenge is that the whole world, most of us, I, I can't remember who said this to me the other day. Oh gosh, someone said something really good to me. I'm trying to remember. Okay. I can't remember, but someone told me the other day, they said it was, it was just in a conversation and they said, they said the problem with the world is that some people think there's, there's a lot of people in the world who think that they're better than they are. And there's a lot of people who think that they're worse than they are. And they said, that's the issue, right? With ego. It's almost like uh, we, we end up in these two, these two forms of ego. One is like, I'm the best. And the other form of ego is I'm the worst. So we still want to be the worst of the worst. We're not okay being a bit of both. And so there's still some ego in that, that we have to compete to be the worst. We have to compete to have the worst life. We have to compete to have the hardest life, or we compete to have the best life and we're the the best. So the way ego and self-esteem or the difference between confidence and ego, the first is that confidence is a complete recognition of both of our strengths and weaknesses, and also a ability. Confidence is actually the ability to not only notice your own strengths and weaknesses, but to notice other people's strengths. And that is confidence. Like confidence is you can see someone when they're in their element and you can be like, God, that person's so good, right? Like they're so good. And I, and I love being able to feel that way about people because it reminds me of the good in myself. When you're confident in noticing your own strengths, you'll be confident about noticing other people's strengths. And so it starts with noticing your strengths and your weaknesses and realizing that you don't need to be the best at your weaknesses. What I've found is that actually, and Dave, you can probably relate to this, that when you're working really hard in your purpose, life humbles you. Like for me, like when I started going on this path, 
the first thing, when I came back from being a monk, I was rejected by 40 companies before an interview because surprise, surprise, who wants a monk with someone monk on their resume, right? Who wants to hire someone? So that was the first thing. When I thought I wanted to be in media, 10 media companies rejected my wellness video idea because I never made a video in my life. Three executives told me I was too old to be in media. I was too underqualified to be in media and that I should just settle because it wasn't gonna happen. And so actually I feel like, and even today, by the way, and you know, I've talked about this on my podcast that when I launched my podcast, a big podcast production company pulled out two weeks before I launched my podcast because they told me it wouldn't be a big podcast. So the point I'm sharing all of this is not to be like, oh, look at me now. That's not the point. The, the point I'm using it is I'm so glad they all rejected me, A, because it humbled me, and B, because actually they were right. I had given them no reason to believe that I could do it. I, I had never made a video. I'd never demonstrated my skills. So a lot of us waste our time with ego defending our skills rather than in self-esteem, which is demonstrating our skills. And so that's the shift we need to make is that ego will keep you wrapped up in where you are and stop you from growing, whereas your self-esteem will make you want to demonstrate and share and then be graceful if you win or graceful if you lose. Because if you lose, you knew you just had to learn something else. And if you won, you know that it's because someone said no to you that helped you get closer to that. I want to talk to you for like 40 more hours, Jay, but I cannot. I will respect your time, you son of a gun. This has been such a nice conversation. I want to end the way that I end every single conversation with any guest on Rise Together. And I want to ask a very difficult question, which is if you could give the listeners of this podcast a single tangible takeaway that they could incorporate into their lives today that would help them have more peace, have more prosperity, have more something that is missing in their lives. What is the single piece of advice that you would afford them? Yeah. So I would share this thing that has really changed my life and it's very practical and easy. And I think you can try it out today. So as monks, we sight, scent, and sound designed our lives which means that what we saw was intentional, what we could smell was intentional, and what we could hear was intentional. And by the way, we, don't, we underestimate the power of our senses and how they affect our mood. So the first thing, sight. When you wake up in the morning, don't look at your phone. Look at a quote, a prayer, a paragraph of a book, a picture of your family, a work of art, whatever it is that inspires you and moves you, start your day with that. Don't start your day with news notification negativity. Like there's no point. Like if, if you start your day with news notification negativity, you've now started at a minus five. And now the whole day you're trying to get back up to zero. Whereas if you start with a prayer, an inspirational quote, whatever moves you, you're going to start your day at a plus three. And then maybe even if you lose a couple throughout the day because of negativity, you're still going to end up in the pluses. So that's the sight. Look at things that inspire you. The reason I have all these pictures is not because they look nice on video. I have them because when I walk into my studio, I get inspired because I'm looking at people and stories and places that inspire me. That's the reason. Yes, it looks beautiful on camera too. But the reason I have them is that it means something to me. So that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is scent design. There's a reason you feel relaxed in spas and massage places because they have sandalwood, eucalyptus, lavender in the air. Go into your room, a room that you want to be calm in, and put on a different diffuser, different essential oil in different rooms of your house for different feelings. My wife does this a lot. And when I walk upstairs and walk into the kitchen and I smell something, it changes my mindset. It slows me right down. It's such an easy way of doing it. 
And the third is sound design. Change the music in different rooms of your home. Make one your workout playlist. Make another one your sleep playlist. Make another one your relaxing playlist. Use sight, scent, and sound design to actually change how you feel. And it really works. I'm going to do that today. I'm here for it. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you have just been graced. You have been given a gift. You, my friend, uh, have just been such a light in my life. And I can attest to anyone who is listening that this person that you have heard from today is better in person person than he is on the internet, than he is in social media. You're just a good dude. And I so, so appreciate you. If people are interested in getting to know you better, they want to follow you, where do they go? What's your handle on the socials? What's a website they can jump on? Where do they get your book that is out and a number one New York Times bestseller? So my uh, handle is at Jay Shetty on all platforms. So that's Instagram, YouTube, Facebook. And if you want the book, then go to thinklikeamonkbook.com and then you can find all the international places wherever you are in the world. And then my website is jshetty.me to find out about all my coaching programs and uh, everything else that we have there. But Dave, I want to say the same back at you. And I mean this, like, you know, I, I, think, I think a lot of people wonder, you know, when you're friends with people and everything, and it's like, we've really built something special and I want to continue investing in it. And, and whenever we do stuff together, whether it's online or offline, uh, it's always a joy, man. And, you, and you're such a, you, you're just such a real good dude, man. Like you just, you're just real. And I, and I love our, this, this honestly was so raw and fun because I, I was really, and that's maybe why I wasn't so practical in a lot of the answers because, because I was literally just talking to you about these amazing concepts that we both get to spend our life studying. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for this opportunity. And I can't wait to share it with everyone thank you. as well. Well, if you as a listener have taken anything from this and how could you have not have, goodness gracious, please take a picture of the podcast on your phone. Please tag both Jay and myself. Share it with every single human being you've ever known in your entire life. And between now and next week, I hope that you are afforded some peace like that of a monk. We will see you next week on the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.